You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, welcome back to National Security Law Today. Quickly before we jump in, we need your help. The People's Choice Podcast Awards are open from now until July 31st. It only takes two minutes to cast your nomination, and your vote makes a huge difference for our show. All the voting instructions are in the episode description. Thank you, as always, for your support. This week, we're airing a recent discussion from the Women in National Security Law webinar program with special guest Lala Kadir, Principal Assistant Director and Chief of Staff of the National Security Division at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and the incoming chair of the Advisory Committee of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Next week, we'll be back with our series on generative AI. Thanks for tuning in. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining this discussion with Lala Kadir, who's going to be the new chair of the advisory committee of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, and is the principal assistant director and chief of staff of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy's National Security Division. I'm Jen O'Connor, chair of Women in National Security Law, which is a project of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Moderating the discussion is Margaret Hu, who's a professor of law and director of the Digital Democracy Lab at William and Mary Law School. She's also a research affiliate with several organizations, including the Institute for Computational and Data Sciences at Penn State University. Her research interests include the intersection of immigration policy, national security, cyber surveillance, and civil rights. She's the editor of a recently published volume on pandemic surveillance and under contract for a forthcoming book on AI and the law. Previously, she served as Special Policy Counsel for Immigration-Related Discrimination in the Civil Rights Division at DOJ, and she's, of course, also a member of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And joining Margaret for this discussion, of course, is Lala Kadir. Lala joined the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy from Covington and Burling, where she advised clients in the white-collar defense and internal investigations practice, in addition to providing strategic advice on structuring cross-functional compliance programs. While at Covington, she was also a member of the firm's Artificial Intelligence Initiative and maintained an active pro bono practice focused on veterans, voting rights, and criminal justice matters. She also served as a professorial lecturer in law at GW Law School and a distinguished fellow with the Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism at Syracuse University. Prior to practicing law, Lala was a management consultant in organizational transformation, strategic planning, and performance management, She helped clients align strategy and accountability in the areas of national security, homeland defense, and judicial reform. She previously served as director of strategy and performance for the Abu Dhabi Judicial Department in the United Arab Emirates, and was a Harvard University Center for Public Leadership Fellow with the F.W. de Klerk Foundation in Cape Town, South Africa. She's also published scientific articles in the areas of military energetics and nanotechnology. We are delighted to have them join us today. Margaret, over to you. 
Great. Thank you so much, Jen, for that very warm welcome and introduction. And it's a great privilege and pleasure to be a part of this dialogue today with Lala. I was asked to engage Lala in a series of questions about professional development, as well as some substantive questions about this very exciting, fast-moving area of national security law. The first question that I have for you, Lala, is you've experienced such tremendous success in this field. This national security space is very competitive, and there's many out there who would like to replicate your success. So would love to hear about your professional journey, some background information and how you got here. Thank you, Margaret. Um, and thank you for, for hello, everyone. It's so great to be with you guys. Thank you for joining. And really a warm thanks and gratitude to the ABA Advisory Committee on Law and National Security for hosting this and the Women in National Security Law Project for inviting me here to chat with you guys today. I follow the trajectory of Margaret and Jen, and they're both trailblazers in the field of law and national security. And so it's a real privilege to sit in conversation with you guys and share a little bit about my background. So you guys are exemplars of the profession, so it's an honor. I also just need to say that my comments here today are my personal observations. And this is the standard disclaimer and don't reflect the values or positions of the White House, the OSTP, or the U.S. government. So with that being said, in terms of my professional journey, as you may have gathered from Jen's very generous reading, it's been a bit of a circuitous route. I've traversed many different sort of fields. I grew up in Maryland and was a child of parents who both worked in the public sector. My dad worked in the Navy for a bit and then Homeland Security and management. And then my mom was working in the Department of Social Services. So both of them were very much inclined towards public service. My sister was at the Department of Education. So I think that was like a value always of service growing up. For me, it was always like I always envisioned myself going to public service. The irony, of course, is I'm probably the one that took the longest to get to public service. But I started off with something that was really passionate. And I think that's a key, maybe a thread or a theme to always follow your passion and seek opportunities. I started off in the sciences. I was like a super science fair geek in high school. And that was sort of like an area of interest that I cultivated. And I ended up doing research in my basement. And then there's a whole story around that. But Eventually, I got to the International Science Fair and I got picked up by some program managers at the Navy. And that was how I first sort of entered into like the public space. I was doing research on military energetics and that eventually got translated into some work in the nanotech space, which this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. So very cutting edge at that point in terms of development. And it was DARPA funded research at the basic research level. So really innovative pushing the boundaries of science. And I sort of continued on in that path and then had sort of a couple of points of departure where I ended up sort of in a space where I got to learn more about policy. And that was in college, doing an intern at State Department for science, science and tech folks and people with that background. And that then led to a career path in policy and science. And I sort of like put that aside for a bit, went into management consulting. And eventually, you know, with some international experiences, decided that like the key to all my experiences and what really drove me was a passion towards problem solving. And law is like the ultimate sort of like decoder ring because you're taught really good skills and in, in analysis and in persuasion to sort of deconstruct complex problems and like create solutions for it. That was sort of the trajectory that I followed through law school and then clerking and then being at Covington that brought me to where I am. I don't know that I would recommend that process to be replicated, but I think the, the theme of finding things that you're passionate about, being driven by, you know, 
a desire to serve, you know, modeling influential people around you that you admire and want to sort of like emulate in their career paths. And really that sort of instinct of service that my parents instilled in me were like key features of how I sort of ended up where I am today. Great. Thank you so much. That's really fascinating. And you have such an impressive background. And a question that I often get, and I want to pose this to you as well, is how did I decide on national security specifically? And for me, I often explain that I started in the civil rights division of the U.S. Department of Justice the day before the terrorist attacks, and I was immediately put on a post 9-11 task force, and I just immediately was thrown into it. And many of my students find national security to be among the most compelling of careers. So would love to hear exactly why you decided to gravitate towards national security. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and we actually share a common point there with 9-11 being sort of like a pivot point, as I imagine it is for many folks. But to take a step back, I mentioned kind of like the trajectory that I was on was a more science-y type trajectory. When I first was in college and I was a chemistry major, and it kind of was a rite of passage to think pre-med, being of South Asian extraction. So that was the path that I was going towards. And I had a really great mentor in the chemistry department. And he was like, you know, you've been working at this like Naval Research Laboratory for five years, maybe one summer, try something different. And it just happened that the State Department had launched a program for science and tech students to go into foreign policy fields and apply the science and tech sort of experience that they had had or interests that they have into that field. And so the summer before 9-11, I got to do an internship in the Office of Chem Bioweapons at the State Department. And that was really my first exposure to this really fascinating world where you have the intersection of a very technical field with foreign policy objectives, with you know downrange national security implications when you think about strategic deterrence and stability and arms control. And as a sort of like rising senior in college, it was just like, I mean, it was like an exciting world. I should mention that at the Naval Research Laboratory, the research I was doing was, was successful. And so I kept getting upgraded to more complex explosives, which are the fancier word of, you know, military energetics. And so at that point, I had been working in photosensitive explosives, which you have to do in the dark by yourself in a very far off corner. So it was really exciting to have like a lot more personal contact with people and sort of in the policy domain. And by series of events, I ended up actually traveling with the U.S. delegation to Geneva. This was during the BWC, the Biological Weapons Convention, was being negotiated for an enforcement mechanism in 2001. And I got to be with the delegation on the floor after six years of negotiation when the U.S. actually pulled out because they had some serious concerns around governance and challenge inspections. And just sort of putting aside the politics, seeing the impact of U.S. leadership or in that sort of situation, sort of pulling back of U.S. leadership, um, and the impact it had both immediately and then sort of long term, 22 years later, the BWC still doesn't have an enforcement mechanism. It's sort of come back around and there's like a full silver element to that as well. But that was just super exciting. And it, and it really opened my eye to the world beyond just science, but the applications of science and science policy. And then when I started my senior year, the first week was, was 9-11 it just sort of shifted the dimensions of, I think, a lot of people. For myself, it was a time that I was supposed to be doing like med school applications. Duke was where I was a college senior. I was also, I'd been elected as the co-president of the Muslim Student Association and was doing a lot of work sort of like in the years previous with like Greek Life and the Hillel group. And so there's a lot of like interfaith work that I've been involved with. And then 9-11 happened. 
And it just sort of shifted priorities. Duke kind of became a center of focus. There was a lot of national coverage. Then President Nan Cohen had like established a task force around campus safety and just sort of thinking about the communities of interest and bringing everyone together. And I was part of that. And so it really shifted my priorities. And I remember sort of like going into at that time, there's a there's a pre-med dean that had approved sort of like all your applications and, and write the letter and just telling her, I don't think I can sort of prioritize that because I felt like I had a duty to the students that I was representing and also to the community. And needless to say, that wasn't well received in terms of prioritization. So I did not successfully get into the med schools that I wanted to that year, but I did get into the Kennedy School and I had a full ride. And so I thought to myself, let me just sort of follow this policy bug because 9-11 to me really sort of emphasized the importance of foreign policy and just having really thoughtful leadership in that space, but also diversity of viewpoints and backgrounds to make it more robust and informed and addressing all the different equities at play. And when I went to the Kennedy School straight out of undergrad, and there are a handful of us that do that, most folks kind of come in mid-career, it was incredible. When I was there, I took a class taught by Juliet Kayyem on national security law and policy. Ash Carter was my advisor because I ended up being in a security track. And I just absorbed as much as I could from that atmosphere. And to me, and, and Margaret, I imagine you share this as well, the intersection of national security and law, I think, is one of the most challenging, interesting, and critical areas of policymaking, especially in the democracy that we live in. And that was really a key motivator for me sort of pursuing this as a career path. Yeah, absolutely. It's just such a critically important work, and especially right now. And the educational and professional background that you had, I think, uniquely qualified and prepared you for your leadership position now in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And so for those who do not have much familiarity with OSTP, could you help just give some background and um, an overview of the work of OSTP and how it feeds into the White House overall agenda? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a super exciting time to be at the White House Office of Science and Technology for a couple of different reasons. First, by way of background, OSTP in this administration is now both a White House Policy Council and also a cabinet level agency. This was the first time in history that OSTP got elevated to a cabinet level. So our director, Dr. Arthur Prabhakar, is both the director of OSTP but also the president's chief advisor on science and technology. And then she chairs the president's council of advisors on science and technology, PCAST. So that has really elevated science and technology across the U.S. government. And I think it's, it's sort of sent this very powerful signal across all sectors of society that there is great value and importance in the acknowledgement and the presence of science and tech in policy conversations. One of the things that our director says often and notes is that the science and tech capability that we have in the country today, like it's fueled by $700 billion um, that we spend annually in R&D, public and private combined, like that's one of the most powerful engines for innovation. And President Biden often says that America is the only nation that can be defined by single word possibilities. So in that space, um, the White House Office of Science and Tech Policy really works to bring that, that idea to life by harnessing the benefits of SNT and innovation to sort of help us achieve our greatest aspirations. With that being said, like you might ask, like, what is the mission space, um, sort of on a practical level? So a few things there. On, on the one hand, 
Dr. Prabhakar and her role as the president's advisor, like she's providing advice to the president and the executive office of the president on matters related to science and technology on a regular basis. Um, our organization also works to strengthen um, and advance America's manufacturing around the science and tech spaces. We work with federal departments and agencies and Congress to create those bold visions, strategies alongside with plans and policies, and all of this to really drive at equitable programs for SNT, which in- incorporates a lot of engagement with our partners, including industry, a lot of academia, philanthropic organizations, and civil society, and also most importantly, taking into account like state, local, tribal, and other nations in terms of our broader impact. Uh, And in this administration, ensuring equity, inclusion, and integrity in all aspects of science and technology is also a very high priority. Fantastic. And I know that there's so many different teams within OSTP and the National Security Division is just one. I know that um, there are many overlapping, uh, you know, missions that uh, intersect with national security so that the teams also include in OSTP, climate, environment, energy, health, science and society in the office of the U.S. Chief Technology Officer. So for the National Security Division specifically. And industrial innovation. We just added that one as well. Oh, innovation. Great. And so if you could just help us to understand more about just the specific mission of the National Security Division within OSTP, that would be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, in terms of the mission for OSTP more broadly, it's ensuring the benefits of SNT. And I kind of like to think about the NATSEC team, NATSEC short for the National Security Division, focus on the net benefits. So What do I mean by that? I mean that like we're also working hard to ensure that the technologies, especially emerging technologies, increase security, prosperity, and values that we espouse as democracies, but that the technology also support a free and open and secure world. And to drive that sort of positive vision of the future, our team focuses on two sort of like core mission areas, if it were, namely to strengthen US long-term global competitiveness by, on the one hand, there's a whole set of activities that we're doing to sort of think more strategically around SNT intelligence. Um, so here what I mean is like um, thinking about like, do we have the right capabilities to do net assessments? Like how does the U.S. tech sector compare to our competitors and our peers and allies? So that's improving SNT intelligence. Um, we're also working on sort of shaping new investments in foundational technologies. Those technologies include, as an illustrative list, artificial intelligence, quantum technology, Um, semiconductors, of course, are really important. Biotech is an emerging area. We're also working to ensure supply chain security, an agile innovation base, thinking through export controls and investment controls, and importantly, building and attracting the world's best STEM workforce. So all that kind of like is bucketed through, you know, this, this global competitiveness, economic competitiveness angle. There's another side of the team in our second mission area that is focused on reducing risk from emerging technologies through assessment, development, deployment, and governance of current and emerging technologies with a particular focus at the intersection of technology and global security, spanning defense, nuclear, biological, cybersecurity, autonomous technologies, increasingly AI, of course, and associated risk of these space, of these sort of like conflict points as well as emergent risks in space, oceans, 
and polar domains. So it is a pretty broad, it, it, there's a lot of work. It's a relatively small team, so we're few and mighty. But I think ultimately our work is to sort of like promote competitiveness and economic strength while also protecting critical industries and, and, and areas of national security. And obviously the, the, the latter part of the work that we do is in the classified space predominantly. Great. So I wanted to drill down a little bit deeper into your day-to-day leadership responsibilities um, in your role as um, both the principal assistant director and the chief of staff for the National Security Division at OSTP. If you could just help us understand um, a little bit of your workflows and how you integrate that into the way you coordinate on all of these very vast and important national security priorities. Sure, certainly. Uh, So when I First joined, so there's been a few sort of like evolutions of my of my job and my role. When I first joined, it was as chief of staff for the NATSEC division. And then last fall, I was promoted to assistant director of technology, security, and governance. And then a month or so ago, I was promoted to principal assistant director. And I'll, I'll unpack those a little bit. But when I initially came on as chief of staff, the role there, I think, was sort of twofold. On an operational level, it's the care and feeding of the team, right? Because you have these brilliant folks who are coming in from all parts of society, really oriented towards driving the best outcome and vision for our nation. And my job as as chief of staff is to just create the right conditions for them to succeed and excel and make the connections across different teams, the building, the interagency, to make sure they have the right tools and capabilities and connections to really effectuate what they're what, what they're hoping to accomplish. The other sort of like part of it is strategic. So you're helping to you think through like what is the roadmap? Like what are your priorities? How do they align to the administration priorities? And how can you best advance them in light of like other competing resource demands? And there's a lot of sort of like thinking about like the right ways to develop, track, monitor performance. So that's where the consulting background actually comes in handy. And of course, the entire enterprise is collaborative, working with teams across OSTP, uh, within the executive office of the president in the building, and then, you know, through the interagency process as well. And I actually really love that as an aside, like in all the promotions I've had, I'm like, can I still be chief of staff? Because I really like working with the teams and kind of like helping them sort of like and learning. I mean, honestly, a lot of a lot of what I've been doing as chief of staff is also just learning about the different areas um, and incredible expertise and knowledge that we have on the team. As assistant director for technology, security, and governance, and, and these are portfolios that I've carried forward now in my principal assistant director role as well, I was also asked to advise on thinking about governance around emerging capabilities and also to sort of handle the portfolio for CFIA. So OSTP is one of the nine member agencies that sits on the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States. And so that falls into my remit as, as you know, sort of weighing in at the assistant secretary level on transactions that come before the committee uh, with regard to their intersection with national security. And then a lot of my sort of governance role has been in the biosecurity space. Now there's AI elements there and, and that pretty much takes up, you know, a, a fair part of my day in terms of those pieces. And then I'm sorry, did you ask about a typical day or how I sort of like? Yeah. Yeah. If you could give us a, an idea of a typical day and then we'll move to, I think, turning to the question about especially your portfolio involving emerging um, technology governance and um, particularly AI. 
Yeah, sure. So I, the short answer, and, and I imagine a lot of folks in similar positions will have similar types of answers, is that there's no typical day. <laughs> Every day is different in its own way to, to sort of like characterize the day-to-day cadence. I would say that generally, you know, I would start my mornings doing like a high-level triage of the, my emails on the unclassified systems, um, just sort of like figuring out the schedule of the day and level setting on what the key priority items are and what the key meetings are. And so normally I'll just sort of like go through and write notes to myself, kind of like how to organize the, sort of the day's proceedings. And then then I'll shift over to the classified systems and there you're doing a lot of reading of intelligence briefings and reports that come out that relate to our areas of uh, critical technologies and, and emerging capabilities in those spaces. And some of those threat assessments and reports may warrant follow-on work or questions. So we will sort of like ask the IC to get back to us on a particular question or a particular type of matter that seemed a little unclear to us. And so you know, I like to get those out earlier in the day so that there's time in the day for those folks to sort of like work up the products and then circle back to us on. And then honestly, the next several hours are just taken up by meetings. In my chief of staff role, I've always had an open door policy. So a lot of those meetings are impromptu meetings from the team. But in between meetings, there's the actual work of drafting the memos or reports, doing briefings to leadership, spending the time to build relationships with the agencies that are our key partners, and the entities across the EOP, the Executive Office of the President, like the National Security Council. And then by that time, it's usually six or seven, and then you spend time kind of triaging emails that you weren't able to get to because of all the meetings and setting priorities for the next day. And then rinse and repeat with the caveat that every day is different than the other. I completely understand, and this is why we feel so privileged that you've carved out time uh, to be with us today, Lala. I'm sure that your schedule is absolutely insane, and especially with um, all of these. I've been looking forward to this all week, so this has been like the joy of my of my day. My <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, but uh, you know, given that we are, you know, according to some experts, at this really critical moment in history, we're facing so many multi pronged national security threats. You explain what's involved in your portfolio, which is incredible. You know, trying to help to manage these um, matters involving nuclear defense, biodefense, cybersecurity, and other emerging technologies like AI and AI-driven national security um, defense issues. So could you uh, explain a little bit more about uh, the White House's involvement? They've been um, involved in a number of initiatives involving AI recently, and there's an increasing emphasis, for example, on AI ethics, and particularly as a differentiator um, in our near competitor in the space, China. Could you just share some of your perspectives on this? Yeah, um, those, those are all great questions. President Biden has been really clear on this point that AI is one of the most powerful technologies of our time. But in order to seek and seize all the opportunities that it presents, we really have to mitigate its risks. And it's sort of in that theme that our team is more, most fully engaged. You know, the, the capabilities of AI are really quite incredible um, with the potential to improve people's lives, tackle some of the biggest challenges in society, whether it relates to climate, energy, health, medicine. But at the same time, AI also has the potential to dramatically increase threats to safety and security, infringe on civil rights and privacy, and potentially erode public trust and faith in in even democracy. So our charge in that space is really to try to usher in this new wave of the digital revolution. It's happening but to do it in a way that ensures that emerging technologies like AI 
really work for and not against our democracy and our national security. And so what that entails is, you know, we're pushing forward on a number of private and public investments uh, in AI, and that sort of like continues to reflect the importance of these areas. And we're trying to really, you know, I think invest in our strengths, um, and, and one of those strengths is innovation. Uh, so protecting the innovation ecosystem to ensure that America truly harnesses the, the net benefits for AI. And again, the net piece is like inclusive of mitigation against the risks, but doing so in a way that keeps our democratic values at the forefront. Uh, with respect to national security in particular, the White House is actively working to address those national security concerns raised by AI, especially in critical areas like cybersecurity, biosecurity, and AI safety. To that end, you guys may have um, seen or read about, I, I think it was maybe um, a month or so ago now, the White House, um, the president and the vice president, along with senior administration officials, met with CEOs of four leading American companies at the forefront of AI innovation, Alphabet, Anthropic, Microsoft, and AI, OpenAI. And the point of the meeting, um, among others, was really to underscore the responsibility and to emphasize the importance of driving responsible, trustworthy, and ethical innovation with safeguards. And the key is safeguard, the governance, the guardrails that are going to be mitigating the risks and potential harms to society. Uh, and that was just part of a broader effort um, that the White House is engaged in to you know, include the voices of advocates, companies, researchers, civil rights organizations, not-for-profit organizations, various communities, our partners globally, and others on these critical AI issues. Uh, and that meeting in particular ended with a commitment by these companies to participate in, in, a, in a series of events, including independent public assessments of generative AI systems to ensure they're aligning with the AI Bill of Rights that the White House put out, and then the AI risk management framework that, that NIST has managed. Um, so really it's been, it's, there's a lot happening in this space. There's all the efforts that, that I just spoke about in terms of the engagement, they're building off the incredible work um, that included the landmark blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights and the executive actions around that particular framework. And then there was a roadmap for standing up a national AI research resource that was released earlier this year. And there's also been a series of executive orders that direct federal agencies to work towards rooting out bias in the design and use of technologies, including AI, and to protect the public from algorithmic discrimination. So there's a lot in this space. It is a very topical area of a lot of in, intense activity, a lot of engagement. We've got, from the regulatory standpoint, we have uh, the Federal Trade Commission, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Civil Rights Division of DOJ, uh, and the EEOC jointly issued a statement underscoring their collective commitment to leveraging um, existing legal authorities to make sure that the American people are protected from AI harms. So there's a lot of efforts from across sort of like the whole of government and the whole of society to really address some of those risks so that we can maximize the benefits that this technology presents. And then internationally, there's a lot of efforts that are ongoing in terms of thinking about responsible stewardship of trustworthy AI. What does that look like? How are the partnerships, um, how will they engage with sort of existing efforts that EU sort of, you know, working on their legislative priorities in this space? Obviously, GDPR was an effort that promoted some privacy 
rights and values. So thinking about how all those pieces sort of like fit together uh, is, is, is fascinating. It's exciting. It's extremely topical. And I, tr I personally believe that like AI is an incredibly transformative technology that will radically change kind of like how society is, is organized and structured in, in many beneficial ways, um, especially if we can address the risk that it could potentially present as well. Was that yeah, responsive absolutely. to your question? <laughs> yeah, it's a tough question because there's so many moving parts to it. Uh, one aspect that I see increasingly discussed in the legal academy and as a matter of research is how do you build bridges of dialogue between some of what you just discussed with building trustworthy AI, socially responsible AI, AI that understands or researchers that understand the risks that come with it and to mitigate um, those risks into STEM education. And I was really thrilled to hear you talk about STEM being one of the national security priorities of OSTP, making sure that we create the most competitive workforce that we can. And uh, there's, you know, a lot of discussion about STEM workforce and immigration issues. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on why that's a uniquely important national security issue. Oh, my gosh, I love that question, um, because it was literally the question I had when I came my first role as chief of staff. And I was like, we do STEM immigration and STEM work as national security. And then I learned how critically important it is. And now I'm like, you know, obviously it's part of my job, but I personally believe it's like a, it's an incredibly important space. So like fundamentally technology plays and will continue to play in a more accelerated manner, a central role in the competition between autocracies and democracies. And this competition, as President Biden often says, is a central challenge of our time. This administration believes that one of America's greatest strengths and going back to the point that I made earlier about innovation and like how that's one of like the most incredibly powerful engines of transformation for society, that type of greatest strength is really premised on our ability to attract the best global STEM talent in the world. So for that reason, the White House has been leading a number of important initiatives to just bolster the ability of the U.S. to welcome the kind of international STEM talent and that it's historically spurred uh, American innovation. And, and to create the right sort of conditions to cultivate that kind of an environment for context. And this was a statistic that I like learned in my, in my job. We only have approximately 5% of the world's population, but we have this incredible asymmetric advantage, um, the ability to, to track the top, 10, the top STEM talent. And I think that's truly one of our superpowers. And as we're looking ahead over the horizon and we're thinking about the, the bold vision that the administration has articulated as part of the uh, Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, all of these investing in America agenda items, they're really premised upon having the best scientists and engineers on our team um, to fully realize that value. And, and just one sort of piece on the Chips and Science Act as an illustrative sort of like example, to fully realize like the Chips and Science Act, which um, sort of at a basic standpoint really tries to build semiconductor capabilities onshore, more than 40% of the high-skilled semiconductor workers in the United States today were born abroad, as were two-thirds of the students in relevant U.S. graduate programs. So we depend on these incredibly talented pools, and we need to sort of build out our STEM talent pool domestically, as well as maintaining the global advantages that we have. And so to that end, um, one of the things I'm really proud of 
for our team at OSTP doing was working with our colleagues at state and DHS and announcing a couple of sort of like key programs and enhancements that would make this process easier. There's an early career STEM research um, initiative at the State Department. That program facilitates non-immigrant visitors to come to the U.S. to conduct STEM research through research, training, or educational visitor programs. DHS has also expanded the fields of study that constitute STEM, qualifying for the STEM optional practical training program. So by widening that aperture, you get more sort of folks who can do lots of different things that fall under the rubric of STEM. We've also worked towards updating criteria for what constitutes extraordinary ability under the O-1 visa process and just sort of broadly trying to make the national interest waiver um, adjudication policies for STEM immigration stronger as well. So uh, we have those things happening sort of on the international front. And then domestically, National Security Memorandum 3, which the Biden-Harris administration released early on, prioritizes the development of a national security workforce. And so we've been working really closely with our colleagues at OMB and OPM and across the interagency to really build capabilities, but also capacity of the U.S. government workforce to have the types of skill sets in these areas of critical technology um, importance. I wanted to pull out one aspect of your um, answer there, Lala, about working together with the State Department on meeting these STEM priorities and ensuring competitiveness and wondering how else do you work with other agencies and the nature of the reinforcement and collaboration that you're able to pull in by having more of a whole of government approach within OSTP. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is where it's like really fun to be part of a team that's so incredibly diverse and talented because there's all sorts of little like pockets of things that I wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to. But in this role, you get this incredible opportunity to work with smart people who are working with smart people across the government. So just to give you a couple of examples, um, we have an assistant director for space security who's been working um, really thoughtfully around cislunar strategies and planetary defense. Cislunar strategy, we, in November, OSTP released the first ever national cislunar science and technology strategy, which focuses on entire region of the Earth-Moon system beyond the geosynchronous orbit, which also includes the surface of the moon. And this strategy basically lays out kind of what is our vision for how U.S. science and technology leadership will support responsible, peaceful, and sustainable exploration and use of the cislunar space. And it's the first of its kind because that kind of capability to go out there didn't exist um, in a way that would warrant the development of an entire strategy. And this was something that we worked very closely with our colleagues at NASA at the State Department to make sure there's alignment with our global partners, with DOD for their, it was a, it was an all of government effort. And relatedly, the same individual also helped um, push out a planetary defense strategy. So this was really cool because, um, and there's a couple of op-eds um, that folks may have, may have seen out about it, but basically it's, it, it's a strategy that, that articulates how the U.S. government is thinking about preparedness for near-Earth objects over, you know, a certain time period. And it focuses the ability of NASA and the U.S. government broadly to make sure that we have a plan in place, that there was a potential near-Earth item orbiting towards us, that we could sort of mobilize and implement protective measures, uh, which is great because 
that would be important to do. So those that's just two examples from the space portfolio. We work closely with colleagues from the State Department also on the US-EU Trade and Technology Council. Um, we have sort of as a historic first, the national security strategy that the White House released um, incorporated a concept of natural security. So natural security being, you know, thinking how to be thoughtful about oceans and polar spaces and uh, sort of all the pieces that go in within there in terms of governance and responsible use um, as part of our national security strategy. And that obviously involved engagement with NOAA, with our colleagues at Commerce, uh, so really a whole of government. And then you've got the quant- we have the National Quantum Coordination Office that sits in our team, and they're engaging with a number of sort of partners across DOE, the national labs, NSF, and then also schools and trying to like educate around quantum, like the Q to 12 initiative that they've launched. So lots of really interesting work in that space. And as I mentioned earlier, CHIPS, which uh, is, is led by the Commerce Department, there's a steering committee that's an interagency process that we're a member of as well. So those are maybe like five or so examples of like a whole set of portfolios that we have in the unclassified space in which we engage very deeply with our partners across the government. Thank you so much. That's so informative. And I think it really helps people to understand, you know, just how complex the position is and the role of OSTP um, serves in managing all of these priorities in national security and emerging technologies. And I see that we're starting to get so many questions coming in and I wanted to reserve enough time for them. So um, one of the questions that pulled up into the chat, and actually several of these questions are interrelated, so I might just ask several of them at once if that's okay, Lala. But um, I I love it. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, it's such a great question. The question in the the chat that just popped up is, what kind of advice would you give to your earlier self to prepare you for success? And it's dovetailed nicely with a few other questions, including, you know, what type of advice would you give um, to those who are trying to plan out a future career in national security? What strategies would you identify for finding appropriate mentors? You know, what areas in national security are the highest growth areas? So I'm just going to start with a few of those, but I love this question about what advice would you give to your former self, your earlier self? What what lessons have you learned and, you know, what would you like to share as, you know, some of those, those great lessons to those who are trying to formulate, you know, a, a similar trajectory of success? Yeah, those are, those are great questions. That's a hard question of like what advice I would give my, my younger self. Um, I think I would, I would give an affirmative piece of advice and I would give sort of like a prescriptive piece of advice. So on the affirmative level, I would, I would say, you know, trust your instinct. I, I tended to do that and I had a very random path of like different career choices And at times I was very nervous because it was just a very uncharted approach to like taking one's career. Like it wasn't really, um, my parents, I think were incredibly patient and supportive because I would like sort of start here. Then I'd be like, this looks interesting. And I kind of go on this side and then I would kind of get sort of like a little bit, you know, distracted, I would say, and go into other areas. But I think ultimately the thread is like, you know, follow what's of interest to you and like trust your instincts. And I think there are times where I was maybe timid in sort of like taking the path that was sort of like the unconventional path. And, you know, luckily I was incredibly fortunate and blessed to have like the support of like my, like my family, my parents, and also just really great mentors and champions. 
to encourage me to take these like very sort of like, you know, left left field kind of opportunities and career, such as working overseas, you know, on judicial reform, which is not a topic I actually knew much about until I was like in it and doing it. I think one of the things that might prescript, uh, might be more prescriptive about is to be a little less concerned about what that 15, 20 year mark is going to be so that you can truly take advantage. I think, I, I think my personality is, this is why I was like, good as a consultant because I really like structure and sequencing and I try to like, you know, you model all the contingencies and you feel comfortable if you have like a sense of like all the different sort of options that might contain, but like life is nonlinear. And I think when life would sort of throw you punches and it would take me off course, it would be like very unsettling. And I, and I think part of that was because I had a very particular vision. Like I thought I was going to be like, a global health epidemiologist type person working in the developing country and and sort of like that would be my life and I would sort of like join doctors at borders every like for some summer break or something and like do these types of things and whenever things came up that didn't quite align like I think I hesitated because it was like it didn't quite fit the vision that I had and I think eventually I was sort of like that was beaten out a little bit of me and I and I just sort of like and now I just like I just go with the flow and I just you pick things up and it's more fun it's more interesting so I would I would say those two pieces of advice and then quickly because I know we're I may have other questions as well the advice I would give to someone who's interested in national security or emerging tech was that the question Margaret yeah and how to identify appropriate mentors yeah. Um, so I would say maybe maybe like three things. Um, first, be a voracious consumer of information and knowledge. Um, that's a lot harder now than perhaps it was 15, 20, 10 years ago, because there's just so much out there. But like, I think the ability to understand and appreciate multiple viewpoints and then tactically just like being on, like being current with news and emerging trends. I think it's important to like curate a diverse source of content and just being very well read in like the key issues and like of the day. And even if you don't fully understand it, like quantum to me was, even though I have a science background, was this very, you know, a, a big mystery. But I picked up a book on quantum and I started reading it. And then it was really cool when I had opportunities to ask questions like in meetings or work with colleagues or, or have lunch with them. Like I just sort of like, you know, I think if you have a little bit of a baseline and you take the initiative, I think that's great. So I would say definitely read a lot. In terms of like seeking mentors, one thing that has served me well, and I and I highly recommend it to everyone, anyone kind of, no matter where you are in your career path, is if there's someone that you find that's like interesting or engaging or has done a cool thing, just reach out to them. Like the worst they can say is I don't have time. But like nine times out of 10 in my life, when I reached out and just been like, hey, I find what the work that you did in X, or I found that the speech you just gave in Y to be really interesting. Do you have a few seconds for me to stop by and talk more about it? Or could you grab a coffee? Like, it, you'd be amazed at how people actually like are receptive to just having someone reach out to them. And I did this when I was, you know, at the law firm here at the White House. Like it's, I think it's just, it's an, it's an underappreciated um, skill set and access that folks maybe don't take as much advantage of because they're shy. I certainly was in the beginning, but once I started doing it, it's like, oh, these people would, they actually kind of like being asked because most folks don't ask them because they think of them as like too um, senior or too sort of like invest, you know, busy or something like that. So definitely do that. And then lastly, I would say 
be open to new opportunities, even if they're not in your wheelhouse. And I would say that especially for science and technology, because these fields are rapidly evolving. And by way of personal story, I like how we may remember this, but when I first joined the, I think it was a standing committee, we had like one of our board meetings. And um, I think it's one of the introductions to like what you're supposed, you know, what your, what your background, like one of the questions was like, what is a book that you've read? And I was, I think a third year law associate at that time. And so, and then everyone else in the room was like general counsel of like an IC agency or like something very important. And so I was already having like imposter syndrome of like, why am I even here? And then when they were like, describe a book that you've recently read, I was like, surely no one's read a book because they are really important people with jobs. And then everyone had read like multiple books, like two or three books. Like they're all talking about these books. That's why my first point was be a voracious consumer of knowledge. And they got around to me and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm, I haven't read anything like in recent years. I've just been really busy at the law firm. I'm checking away as a good associate. But I did read an article last night on a, and this is like maybe in 2016, on AI national security in the Atlantic. And I sort of like gave a couple of highlights and I said to the committee, we should really think about this as something that we, you know, sort of pursue downstream. And that then resulted in me leading a panel for the ABA Law Review Conference, National Security Law Review Conference that fall. That led to an opportunity for someone saying, hey, love to have you moderate that, that panel. Will you be a co-professor with me teaching AI? I had not done AI at that point in my life. And then I became a professor of AI at GW. And so, you know, that was just a scary thing. And I think being open to new opportunities and seizing the moment, even if it's not in your wheelhouse, can yield incredible things. And that's sort of like the path that led, you know, eight years ago to where I am today, where I live and breathe a lot of things around AI and emerging technology. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this fantastic conversation with Lala, for being so wonderfully generous with your expertise and your time today. And thank you to Jen for introducing the event, Mary, you know, for your leadership and Holly and Rebecca as well. So thank you very much and looking forward to the next event. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.